This is Leadership in Action, and I'm Mark Stiles, your host. Join me as we delve deep into the passions, expertise, and experiences of Boston area innovators. Sponsored by the Boston Chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization, this is Leadership in Action. Hey folks, welcome back to Leadership in Action, your Boston Chapter of Entrepreneurs Organizations podcast. Leadership in Action. Today's guest is a forward-thinking financial professional, an insightful consultant, entrepreneur, and management executive. He's happiest helping a company reach its stride. His company is one of our EO Boston's newest strategic alliance partners, so listen up. This is the president and CEO of Genuine Business Advisors, a business brokerage. Please welcome our newest SAP, John Gleason. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Mark, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> John, what is the most positive lesson you've learned while running a business? The most uh, positive and powerful lesson I've learned in terms of running a business is how much of an impact we can have on our colleagues and team members, you know, within our company, uh, as far as running the business goes, I, I've been running businesses almost my whole life since my twenties now, my adult life. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that I am still in contact and friendly with, I think everyone I've ever worked with. So, um, and that's not always easy at the workplace, as you know, Mark. Oh no, that's not easy at all. So you, so you, run businesses with a very personal touch then with your employees, contributors, what do you, what do you refer to them as? We refer, refer to our colleagues as teammates, team members. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I coach sports for 11 years, long enough, uh, coached several sports, really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, played a little bit of sports in, you know, high school, American Legion, that type of thing. But we really, have learned that today's uh, workplace that we have to be teammates. We have to support each other. We work in a flexible environment too, for genuine business advisors. So that means that we're oftentimes not in the same office. You know, we're in different locations. So we have to support each other in, in, uh, in many different ways. But over the years of running different businesses, I've learned that most important thing you can do is to acknowledge folks, you know, both when they're doing something wrong and when they're doing something right, but also to try to teach them to treat them as members of a team. Um, and uh, that, that has not gone wrong for me. It does work for us. So let's talk about the team. So the team atmosphere, as you are leading that team, how do you develop that culture? Like, what are you doing to create that chemistry that teams talk about? So one of the things we do is we acknowledge right off the bat that we are not all going to be expert at all things and that we are going to have different strengths and weaknesses. So we will have uh, team huddles where we will talk about, I'll make up a name, talk about Nick, say, you know, Nick's, you know, really disappointed us on this project. You know, let's, let's speak with Nick in regards to what's going on. Um, but the first thing we'll do is acknowledge what he's done right. Nick, I think you're doing a fantastic job in terms of the database, in terms of, you know, X, Y, Z. But in terms of your client-facing work, you know, that leaves something to be, desire, to be desired. And we try to do it in a warm way. You know, this we're trying to emulate, you know, Bill. Bill's another person that's on the team and, and, and so forth. And 
I, I personally don't believe in a lot of meetings. We do a weekly uh, manager's meeting at, at my company, but we, we touch base all the time, right? So we don't do water cooling, me water cooling meetings every single day, but we touch base with different people and just try to acknowledge what's going right, what's going wrong. And um, I personally think that time is really important too and speed. So uh, for example, at our company, we believe in uh, the speed uh, a theorem that's put out by a gentleman named Jay Bayer. His last name is B-A-E-R, and he's a New York Times bestseller. And he has written books about, it's not always the company that gets back um, with the most uh, complete answer or the most superfluous writing or, or, or anything. Oftentimes, it's the company that gets back to the prospect the fastest, the most appropriate way. Um, so we believe in speed mixed with efficiency and uh, and uh, completeness. So it, that ties into the team because we want our team members to understand that, no, it's not okay to reply three, may, three days later after an email. You know, we, we're trying to reply same day or next day. And that's in whatever we do. Let's talk about the genuine business advisors then. So, so when you're talking with companies that are getting ready to sell their business, you know, how does that conversation open and how much conversation do you have around the culture of the company? We do have a conversation around the culture of the company. Um, oftentimes, that's a really, really good point, Mark. Um, yesterday, I met with a couple who is contemplating selling a construction slash uh, septic service business in New England. They've had it for 30 years. They've never sold a business before. So in that particular instance really the first hour and a half we were really talking about the process and how it works and what their expectations might be and how we will handle it in a discreet manner and what papering the deal means and how to properly market the company how to write a confidential information memorandum what are their what is the couple's uh, responsibilities or what should they be interested in besides just you know best price and there, there's a lot of detail to it so to your point um we're, we're talking more about them, the first meeting. In the second and third meetings, we have one, another one scheduled. Uh, the second meeting, we're going to talk a little bit more about what makes us different from another entity that they're talking to, which happens to be a law firm, which um, doesn't professionally sell businesses. But that, that's a great question, Mark. It really depends on where we are in the process. How many of the people who you find aren't aware that they actually have a saleable asset? And that oh, that's, it's that's option is the option is, well, we're just going to retire and close the doors. That does happen, especially with the smaller businesses. And, and the couple that I met with yesterday was really amazed when I told them there are, there are literally hundreds of potential buyers for their business. They had, they had never thought of it. They had never contemplated that. Um, probably because they've been working you know, hard head down for, for years and years, for 30 years. But that happens quite often, Mark. Folks uh, don't realize that there's a, a market of buyers out there that are constantly looking for good deals or strategic tuck-ins or, or bolt-ons or what have you, depending on the business. Or it could be an entrepreneur that um, is just ready for the, his next challenge or someone who just got out of uh, uh, 25 years of Procter & Gamble and has their you know, retirement hand but, but has a lot of uh, gas left in the tank and they want to do something else. 
So what do you say to that business owner who's out there, who's kind of aging through it, kind of burning out and saying, well, you know, who are my buyers? Uh, you know, maybe some one of the employees will buy, one of the contributor team members will buy. And then they find you like, who is the buyer for a septic construction company, another septic construction company? Yes, Mark. Um, the best buyer for that company is probably a strategic buyer who wants to get into the particular geography where that company is already operating. Um, the other thing is the relationships and the reputation and the name that they've built over a 30 year time period is very, very valuable. And uh, it's funny, you know, different folks, depending on their background and their mindset, um, what's important to them doesn't always come to the surface until we have a meeting or two. But um, there, there are folks that are very interested in that business, and I'll explain why. They have a recurring revenue because they have maintenance contracts on the septic systems. And in Massachusetts, if you own a home that has a septic system, you have to get a certification before you can sell that home. And uh, so in other words, the, the septic system has to be inspected and approved. So oftentimes, if a homeowner doesn't take care of the septic system, it will fall into disrepair and they won't be able to sell their home. It may require a $100,000 repair before they can actually market that property. So these folks have done a wonderful uh, job of creating recurring revenue with their, you know, 500 plus homes that they take care of. So to your point, to your, to your last question, some folks that are looking at their business are interested because there's recurring revenue. They can tie that into their landscaping or their hardscaping company or their pool installation company or, or, or what have you, they, or their fence installation company. That's interesting. So they see like the economies of scale where if you've got monthly recurring revenue, what's the difference? We simply are doing a different service, but our books are the same. Everything is all merged together. Right. So company A that's north of this company says, well, we have a thousand clients. We have a thousand homes to take care of and we're doing their fencing and their hardscaping and we've got pools installed in 175 homes. Wow. What if we offered septic now? And we're already, we already have the trucks. We already have a lot of skilled individuals. What if we, you know, just change our marketing so that, you know, we can take our trusted name and their trusted name. And uh, so then we talk about the synergies. What are the potential, not only financial synergies, but marketing synergies and people synergies? You know, who is required to stay on um, if we do uh, merge these two firms or not required, but who, who is best apt to stay on it? What, what's, what's best for the folks there? And uh, there's a lot to that because you have to look at benefits and salaries and culture and hours and the list goes on. But if it's done properly, it can be a really great situation. And it's great for the customers too, because they have one less vendor to call. Right. Who, how do you reach those people though, that are, have that business that are thinking about retirement and not realizing that they have anything of value? So the best way to, to, in my opinion, to reach people is to tell them stories, is mm. to say, well, we have an analogy for you. And, uh, you know, here it is. We had a meeting with Natalia and her husband, Eric, and that was five years ago. Same kind of a mindset, similar business. And this is where they are today. Would you like to call them and talk to them about that, pro you know, how that process went? And uh, But I, I'm a storyteller from way back, so I think that's what I like to do. And also... Uh, because data is cold, but we can provide data 
you know, what the average sale for that particular business uh, nets and um, how long it took. And there are databases out there now that we can lease. So we are already um, involved with one is PitchBook, for example, that will give us a lot of data in regards to businesses of that type sold all over the United States, who buys them, when, what the multiples were. Multiple refers to a multiple of free cash flow. Um, so it's it's not like they're operating in a dark room. There, there is data that's available. It's just an educational process. And, you know, we try to be cognizant of the fact that they are expert in what they do and we have some expertise in what we do and that we have to be very careful to um, to listen. Just like you do, you're a great listener, Mark. And so what we try to do is be really quiet in the first meeting or two and take, I took a voluminous amount of notes yesterday and I converted them and put them into my CRM and, uh, so we have a combination of being uh, warm, uh, experienced people in data and technology, just like many businesses today. We're a service business. How do you figure out the multiple? So that was one of the questions that, um, that I was asked yesterday. So <laughs> what we do is we say, okay, there's typically a business of your type, uh, Mr. Business Owner or Mrs. Business Owner is valued on a multiple of free cash flow. So we're going to calculate free cash flow in two different ways for you to see which is the best deal for you. The first way is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's a calculation that we can do once we have three years of recent uh, books and tax returns uh, from the prospective client. So we'll calculate EBITDA. It's called EBITDA. That's the abbreviated mm -hmm. name for it. Then we will also, and by the way, a depreciation is a big part of EBITDA. So oftentimes, if a company has capital equipment, they have uh, land, they have buildings, so forth, um, there's a depreciation, which is a paper number, which figures into the calculation, which can sometimes, in a way, increase the value of the company. The second way that we value the company is through a um, calculation, which is called SD as in dog, E as in Edward. So it's seller's discretionary earnings. And... That's usually a smaller business that doesn't have much in the way of depreciation. And that will include the, the owner's ad backs, if you will. So for example, if the husband and wife have three or four cars between them, which they did, and they have a son in school who is uh, on the payroll and is, you know, is doing part-time work for them, or they have uh, a vacation home in Conway, New Hampshire, and in uh, Naples, Florida, which they do. <laughs> so part of that's going to add back because that's running through the business as an ex what's called an expense. So they're expensing those luxuries, if you will, through the business. If they if they were not there, the theory is, what would the business really gross in that? So what we try to do is to make that clear to a prospective buyer. So the first thing we'll do, though, is we're going to calculate EBITDA and sellers discretionary earnings for the prospective sellers and say, this is probably the way we should present this to the marketplace. And when I did speak with them yesterday, they, they want us to calculate both because they do own acreage and they do own buildings with the business. So they're trying to contemplate if they want to be a landlord, sell the business to someone else who, who would be their tenant, mm. and or is it, or are they better off? Of course, they're going to gross more if they sell the land and the building, but are they better off to, to sell the whole kit and caboodle and then go to Naples full time? And they're, they're really seriously contemplating that. So that, that's that's how we do that. The other thing is those are only calculations to calculate what is oftentimes referred to as free cash flow. Now we have to look at historical data mm -hmm. to see how that free cash flow has been treated in our regional marketplace. 
that particular company was located in eastern Massachusetts. So what we'll do is gather up the data on similar companies going back about five years. And we'll present to them a, uh, you know, a brief PowerPoint that will kind of show the, the, the bar charts, and the pie charts, so that they can look really quickly and say, okay, a median price would be this, maximum price would be this, minimum price is this, this is where it should be. Um, assuming that there are no further uh, complications like debt that we don't know about or litigation or, or those types of things. So it, it's, it's math. It's I, I, I spoke to one of them yesterday and I said, it's, it's blue collar work. And she said, well, what do you mean by blue collar work? I said, well, this real work that has to take place. We have to be very careful about the numbers that we use. It's not a guessing game. Uh, we have to make sure we look at the right databases and so forth and then present it to you in such a way that you can make a logical, precise decision. That's good. That's that's really cool. So the multiple is is not a specific multiple unless it's industry standard in the region. You got something right. that's unique. You're f- kind of floating it, right? So it's what's a yes. buyer willing to pay and what a seller is willing to sell, right? That's the old saying, Mark, right? So a lot of folks will tell you that a business, a car, a home, is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it on any given day. Now, that being said, there are some businesses that will sell for a multiple of revenue sales. And, you know, those, those tend to be businesses that have recurring revenue or software as a service, for example, might sell oftentimes for, I'm making up a number, 1.5 times revenue. So the revenue is $2 million. Typically, you might see a $3 million transaction price for that type of business, in particular, if there's recurring revenue. Um, and is is the reason for that because they, as a buyer, believe they don't they can run the business better, so they don't even look at how that's the part of it. That's part of it. The other part is that there's predictable revenue with profitability, so it's kind of viewed in such a way that listen, the the software's already developed, the the uh, subscriptions are already sold. We know what the uh, the drop off rate's going to be in terms of subscriptions. So say they're selling a subscription type software service. And it's eight dollars a month. They know mathematically how many people are not going to renew and how many new subscriptions they need to sell to maintain that 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 cash flow. So, a, a an educated financial buyer that looks at that, or an educated software services buyer, software as a service buyer, which is commonly referred to as SaaS, they'll look at a business like that and they will have a pretty gosh darn good idea of what it's worth. And it may be worth more than one point five times revenues. I'm just using an example. There are yeah. businesses out there that sell for a great multiple because there's accelerated sales. So they there's a mathematical process we can show a prospective buyer where we're seeing that not only are sales uh, steady, but they're increasing every year with little to minimal effort because the software is that good or because there's a gap. There's a there's a gap in the other competitors out there no one has this particular software so if we show we show something like that you can command a very powerful multiple that's very different type of a business than a septic service business however however there's only so many septic service businesses in this geography that we're talking about so theoretically to your point earlier someone north of that business will look at that business and say wow this is a very very logical common sense acquisition for me to make Plenty of gas in the tank. Our 25 team members who really love to gobble up this business, and we can do great things with it. Uh, that that typically will command a better better uh, 
a better than average multiple, but it certainly won't be like a software company. Got it. So, well, let me ask you this. So you've got personal service, you've got construction, you've got software as a service. Who's your ideal client? Our ideal client is typically a service business in this area. There's not a lot of manufacturing left. I actually came from manufacturing myself in terms of my background. I owned a commercial printing business and sold it to Kohlberg, a big private equity group, you know, 20, 20 some odd years ago. But back to this area, it's usually service companies. Uh, it can be a professional. Co- we're talking to a CPA firm right now that wants to sell. Uh, it can be a marketing company. Uh, it can be, you know, fill in the blank on service companies. There's so many in the area, particularly in Eastern Massachusetts and Southern New Hampshire. Uh, we, we do run into companies that have, uh, uh, and you know, we're working with some right now, they've got some piece of real estate that's involved, you know, plus the business, but typically it's a service business that can be moved anywhere. Is there a playbook that you have that, that, um, works for all personal services, whether it's a, CPA firm or a marketing firm? I mean, very different businesses, but is it a similar process for you? And, and It's your- a similar process, but there's no real playbook. It's a little bit different, and that's very astute of you, very astute question. Uh, you know, a CPA firm is very different than a marketing firm, you know, very different than a translation firm. Um, it's um, and a very different um, database of prospective buyers, too. So they, they, for example, with the CPA firm, it's, I, I hate to use the word cut and dry, but I'm going to use the words cut and dry. Yeah. The, the folks that are looking at a CPA firm are typically other CPA firms. They want to know what the average you know, revenue was per tax return. They want to know how many personnel are there. Um, I mean, literally, uh, it can be um, presented very quickly. They want to know where... Uh, you know, how long they've been in business and so forth. They don't really care that much about the office space or what have you, because they're going to tuck that business into their own business. Right. Whereas uh, I think with the marketing firm, it's much more important who the marketing firm's clients are. The CPA firm, it's mostly folks that are earning between dollars and $300,000. So it's very uh, predictable revenue also. Uh, whereas the marketing firm, um, a lot, it, there's much more involved with the marketing firm because of the technology that's involved with the, the, the marketing firm that I'm speaking of. And uh, in the, the, the world of marketing can be a worldwide list of prospective buyers as opposed to the CPA firm that I'm speaking of. It's probably going to be another local CPA firm uh, that, that's going to uh, you know, pick up these employees and tuck them in. So how does it work? So you, you, you meet with these prospective sellers, you coach them up, you get them ready are you, well, you engage them, you market them. Are you going and finding the buyer? Is there a cooperation with other folks like yourself? No, we're going to find the buyer. So what we're going to do is, is to create a, a teaser or two or three, depending on what market we're going, to, we're going to show this prospective seller. We're going to write up uh, what's called a confidential information memorandum. With the help of the sellers, we're going to ask for their approval throughout the process until we have a document that we're comfortable with sending out. We're going to present the non-disclosure agreements to the seller, make sure they're okay with them before we, we use them in the marketplace. We're going to, depending on the type of business, for example, we may list a business on bizbysell.com. So bizbysell.com is to business sales as Redfin is to real estate. So it's a, 
it's a website that that would probably be great for the septic business that I was talking about a little bit mm-hmm. earlier. Very helpful, um, but not for the marketing firm, not for the CPA firm, probably. So that's, um, the, that's somebody. So so a buyer can access that who's doing it themselves. Exactly. I'm looking for X amount of recurring revenue mm-hmm. with the operation staying put. I'm going to be a passive investor. I'm going to buy this business. They can they can seek that out on right. buying. And then what we'll do is we'll talk to the prospective buyer about their financial setup. You know, how is it that you're going to be able to acquire and run this company financially speaking? So we'll do our due diligence to make sure that this, this entity is not a tire kicker. I mean, they do in fact have the ability to run the business because as you would probably expect, you know, folks that are selling their business, they're very concerned about the employees. They want to make sure that the entity is going to survive because it's part of their legacy. So like the couple that I met with yesterday is a perfect example. Uh, on a, it's not just the dollar value they give to the business. They want their employees to have a home and be able to grow. And, and they've got folks that have been with them for 20 plus years. So it's, it's very important to them that we do a good job on the due diligence side. But back to your earlier point too, if, if we've got a, an entity that's going to sell and needs national exposure, we are not against um, networking or co-brokering with another entity that's larger in a particular space. So, for example, talking to a small hotel tomorrow, and they actually want us to co-broker um, their hotel. And I think it's like an 86-unit. I haven't spoken to them yet. It's a brand-new opportunity. It's an 86-unit um, property. They want us to, to be open to co-brokering it with another entity that does a lot of hotels. But they need the personal touch from us on this side because that entity is in Chicago. So, to, to your point, on occasion, we'll co-broker, sure. Uh, the you, have the, is, you, you have the exclusive, exclusive marketing agreement. However, other people might be working with buyers who have no connection to your seller, however, can yes. bring that buyer to you and you can be the Yes, the we, team. we are contacted every week by buy-side groups Got it. Um, who are essentially looking for deal flow for their buyers. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting side of the fence that they're on that, that did not really exist 20 years ago. But they, they now have popped up. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with, by the way, just quickly, is the availability of data. You know, 25 years ago, people that were in our business would say, well, I've got all the, the buyers are in my back pocket and I know everyone and uh, that type of thing. You know, we've done repeat business. And today, um, the data is available to anyone who knows where to find it. And, and then you can therefore contact. And there are literally thousands of private equity groups and family offices in the United States and abroad. They're constantly looking to do acquisitions as well. So um, it's not the way it was, you know, back in the day, uh, 25, 30 years ago. It's it's more about slicing and dicing the data that's available and making intelligent and, and uh, experienced decisions regarding your client and, uh, and, and and coaching them and assisting them along the way. Let's talk about you for a second. You mentioned that you had a printing company and you sold it. Tell us about that experience and how it kind of led to uh, you doing this for other people. I'd love to. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm in this business today is um, in college, I was working at a printing company part-time. Uh, the owner took a shine to me, had me doing his books, and I was doing a lot of you know, physical work in printing plant, and I ended up getting into printing through his uh, advice and uh, some time I spent at Northeastern, and I ended up working in printing for 23 years after that. And so in my 20s with other gentlemen, I was selling commercial printing in Boston. And uh, 
he and I founded a company in Framingham as called Bay State Press. And uh, we wanted to create a just-in-time commercial printing company that would uh, be able to produce six and eight color work very quickly, which at the time was not the case. At the time, those types of jobs would take a month. And we were sheet-fed printers, and we dealt with large entities. We ended up doing mostly marketing collateral for Putnam, State Street Global Research. We became a fidelity vendor after 10 years. We did medical device slicks for Johnson Johnson. It took us 10 years to get into that company. And we did WGBH. My client, I had a client called Frontline. And anyways, we started out just he and I ended up, you know, 13, 14 years later, we had 130 employees and we bootstrapped the company ourselves. I borrowed $67,000 on a ranch house that I owned and he wasn't able to come up with any, any money at the time. He did sales. I did the accounting and uh, the the financial officer work. And uh, we had six staff people that were just accountants and we had six estimators, 12 salespeople, six is a straight jobs, the whole bit. Our presses were 55 tons. We were 115 feet long, 11 feet without a catwalk, 14 feet with a catwalk. We had eight of them by the time we finished. And uh, for personal reasons, my, my partner wanted to sell the business. So in 1998, we sold it. The name of the business was Bay State Press, like Massachusetts, the Bay State. We sold it to Colberg and Company. They were doing a roll-up. It's called a roll-up in, in the commercial printing business. They were buying businesses just like ours. Um, they assigned me to be the president of the Boston Division, which was Framingham, and then also to help them go out and do due diligence on operations in other parts of the country that they wanted to acquire. So I did that for 18 months. Really enjoyed it. A little bit too much travel, Mark. A little bit too much time in the residence ends of the world. But I think we all need to do that in our corporate lives. And then I ended up staying there for three years. And just before 9-11, I went to work for a, um, an entity that was an emergent acquisitions company. I did load of mid-market, and they were headquartered in New York City. We had a Boston office. I lived in Metro West at the time, and I loved that work. I did that from 2000 to 2012. But uh, So what I did was I met with A-type personalities who were entrepreneurs, either the family or the founders, and I helped them through the process I had gone through when I sold to Colbert Company and explained to them how the due diligence would work and what you know uh, the private equity folks would be looking at and what they wanted and what their role might be if they decided to go to work for them and how they might retire. And I had many, many weeks with folks from Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Bank of America because the sellers needed to be comfortable with their takeaway from selling the business. You know, what would they net so that they could you know semi-retire or retire? Or, or maybe get into another business entity like myself. So I love that work, but in 9, 10, and 11, banking wasn't what it used to be. And I was really having a tough time um, you know, floating. My, at that time, my two kids were entering private college, and they're both out now. But in any case, uh, I did that in 2012, and I went to work in corporate America for four years. Enjoyed that time there, but it's very, very different. Did a lot of travel there, too. Then I started a... Uh, a bookkeeping uh, franchise with supporting strategies in 2015, which I still own. I have four franchises there in Massachusetts, and we have about 130 clients, and we have 17 staff members. But during my tenure supporting strategies, I realized that a lot of my clients were selling their business. Yeah, and uh, we we actually had uh, that happened numerous times. We've actually had it happen twice last week alone. Wow! And uh, so we realized that you know I actually had a a conversation with my adult son. He says, 
you know, what do you think? And I said, I, I'm going to get back into the business. I know I can help my clients. I know that some of them are um, perhaps not going about it the right way for many reasons. And uh, so I went back to uh, Columbia Business School last year and I got my certification in mergers and acquisitions purposely. And I have a certification in management accounting for Cornell as well. So those are very helpful, um, you know, experiences for me uh, in what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I went out back out to the marketplace, spoke with some of my clients, and I'm, I'm helping some of them right now. Um, because essentially, as you, you know, Mark, when folks start a business, they typically don't start it to, to die. In it. <laughs> so yeah. they typically, they, they realize that at some point in time, they're going to turn it over to their family. They're going to sell it. They're going to merge it or what have you. But what happens is folks get so tied up in the day-to-day -day operations that they, they, they're focusing on that alone and not on themselves and their family sometimes. Then what sometimes happens is a major health event takes place, God forbid, or there's a divorce or something happens where folks take a, take a sabbatical, if you will, to look at what they're doing personally. And they, they'll, they'll look back and say, well, I have plenty of savings. My health isn't what it used to be. You know, I love the business, but I can't give it my all any longer. It's not fair team. It's not fair to my family. It's not fair to myself. What should I do? And that's when we should meet with them or when they've decided that they want to do an acquisition. We're actually helping some people on the buy side as well. We have, we have a few clients on that side, but, but the, primarily we help sellers because that's where our expertise is. That's a great feeder system you have with the bookkeeping because you, you're, you're A, aware of where people are, but B, you're making sure that their books are tight for, for a buyer to uh, analyze through due diligence. Cheers. Thank you. You know, one of the reasons I was really excited about getting involved in bookkeeping in 2015 was when I was an emergency acquisitions intermediary for 12 years. And I actually was in charge of Northeast for the last four years, my tenure. Our biggest problem was not getting uh, current books uh, for a prospective buyer. So the buyer would look at the business and say, yeah, it looks great. I can see your numbers on the teaser. I see this and that. And I got tax returns from two years ago. What's going on now? Well, they're not current. They're not filed. They're not this, they're not that. So on the bookkeeping side of things, we keep things up to snuff. You know, we're, everyone's current. We close the month by the 10th of the following month, usually sometimes earlier than that. And uh, you know, we make sure everybody has their, their books so that they can, they can interpret the data properly in terms of key performance indicators, in terms of trends. We use different software programs for forecasting. One we use is Fathom. Uh, F-A-T-H-O-M. And uh, so I felt like, geez, if we ever had these tools when I was in the M&A business, we would have been much more successful and less frustrated. Because a lot of folks will tell you that 80% of businesses do not sell. And that's true. That's the data that I've always heard. And one of the reasons for that is that there are some folks out there that will take a business and list it, even though the books aren't current. Mm. Even though there's a litigation against the company, even though the family is squabbling about the sale of the business. So what we try to do at Genuine Business Advisors is address the problems that are going to come up in due diligence, because we've worked in due diligence before, um, and I've got a team member with me at Genuine Business Advisors. So he's been in medical devices for 25 years. We know what's going to come up. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get the problem solved so that you're ready to go, and you have a realistic idea, too, of what the business is worth. The second reason that businesses don't sell, by the way, there's, there's three or four different reasons. One's litigation. One is the books aren't, aren't current or they're suspect, maybe. Another reason is that the 
the seller gets cold feet. They haven't discussed it properly with family members. They don't, you know, yes, they, they unfortunately they had a health event that scared them, but they didn't think it through. They didn't realize that, yes, you can come back. You know, you don't. So we don't push people if they've had a health event. That's the only reason they're thinking about selling the business. We, we, we really ask them because we don't want to take them aboard as a client and have them be six months into the process and then get cold feet. So that's another reason too. The, 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 another reason too is financing is, and wh- what do I mean by that? So if it's a small, small business, let's say it's a septic business and let's say the business is worth a million and a half. Let's say, let's just say that. Is that a financeable number for someone who comes in and wants to do an SBA loan, for example, or a loan that's partially guaranteed by the SBA? So we'll do that work. We work with another team member who's a former CPA and he's a loan broker. It's an expert in SBA loans. Not every small business sells through the SBA process. I'm not saying that. But what we're saying is, will it, will it meet that smell test? It will? Okay, fine. That's, it's going to be a more saleable business than a business that won't. Because a business that won't perhaps requires a larger down payment than SBA. And I could go on and on ad, ad nauseum, but we, what we try to look at is the four or five reasons that typically prevent a business from being sold. So get those obstacles removed up front. And then when we bring the business to market, it's ready to go. It's realistically a business that will close and it can, it can, it can, be, uh, it can go through the due diligence process without problems. And it will sell eventually. That's really interesting and and very thorough and it's it's uh, I'm learning Thank quite you. a bit here. So so I appreciate that. So we've been learning from you. Tell us a little bit about you, though. You seem like you've got a lot of balls in the air. You got kids out of school. You've got multiple businesses going. What do you do for fun? Well, thank you. I, I well, I've been married 41 years. Wow. Uh, to my wife Kathleen. So we try to travel when we get an opportunity from time to time. I have two grandchildren. Ava and Archer, my uh, granddaughter Ava's five now and Archer's two. I try to get out of my Harley on the weekends when I can. I'm a Harley guy. I'm a Planet Fitness guy. I try to go as often as I possibly can. What kind my of Harley? I really love to go camping up at Acadia National Park in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine. We go to Hadley Campground up there. I'm sorry, Mark, what did you say? <laughs> what kind of Harley do you have? I have a Heritage uh, Milwaukee 8. Uh, I bought it new in, I think it was 2018. Uh, so it's just called the soft tail. I don't yeah. know if you, you're familiar with them or not, but I really love it. It's the second Harley I've owned. I bought the first one used. Prior to that, I, I owned Suzuki's, but the seat height got to be a little bit too much for me, Mark. And now, <laughs> now I like the Harleys. And, and you know they can go into state too, which is in all seriousness. That's why I like the, the soft tails are the soft tails are one of the more beautiful things on the road, I think, in my opinion. So you go up to Arcadia with it. I go up to Arcadia, Bar Harbor. Yeah, love it up Pretty. there. It's about a six-hour ride, but uh, it's a different world. Great seafood. Um, the Acadia National Park has a couple of campgrounds. The one that we go to is actually on a cliff. You can look out over the ocean. It's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, we try to go once a year. But those are some of the things I like to do. I love it. Well, the most important question, I believe, on this podcast is somebody's listening to you. And they're curious, they're intrigued, and they want to connect with you. How would they best do that? I think the best way is to email me at john at genuinebusinessadvisors.com. And I return all of my emails. And I would get back to someone normally the next day. And I would love to have a conversation with absolutely anyone 
has any questions or is curious about the process on either the buy or the sell side. That's awesome because I think there are a lot of people out there who think they're the only owner of their business, right? That nobody Absolutely. else would actually want to buy their business. Mark, you can't be more correct than that. It's very much the case. Wow. Well, I want to thank you, John Gleason of Genuine Business Advisors, John at GenuineBusinessAdvisors.com. I really appreciate you coming on here. I'm truly grateful for your role as an SAP for our Boston chapter of EO. We really are grateful for what you all are doing to help us uh, fund some of the initiatives that we do. Folks, get out there and meet this guy. Really interesting guy. He's got a lot of value, a lot of wisdom. Go up and say hi and reach out to him if you are one of those people who think, you know what, is my business saleable? Am I uh, in the position of doing that? And what should I be doing to get started with that? Reach out to him. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. It means more to me than you know. Trust me. Folks, thanks for listening. If you learned something today, tell somebody about it. If there's someone that you're thinking about right now who is in that position to potentially selling their business or who's looking to acquire other businesses, share this with them so they have easy access to John. John, thank you again, my friend. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day, Mark. Folks, this has been another exciting episode of Leadership in Action, our Boston chapter of Entrepreneurs Organizations podcast. Thank you and be well. Leadership in Action is sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. As the world's only peer-to-peer -peer network exclusively for entrepreneurs, EO helps transform the lives of those who transform the world.